the science knows what's going on. Now, what we are going to do about it, that is different, right? And I think there are there can be a legitimate discussion about which policy instrument is effective, which policy instrument works, which doesn't work. How does it affect people of different income levels? And so I wish that we can kind of leave the discussion about what's going on behind us and then focus our discussion of how are we going to address it. Clean Energy is On Topic with IU. My name is Kenny Smith with the Media School at Indiana University Bloomington, and I'm speaking with Dr. Jerome DeMortier from the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs at IUPUI. Dr. DeMortier, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. Your research, sir, centers on environmental and agricultural economics and energy, bioenergy and land use. So it's fortunate that we have uh, this opportunity to talk with you during Clean Energy Week. Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb has recognized the week, as has the state of Indiana. Holcomb says there are more than 86,000 clean energy jobs in the state. So educate me here briefly. I read clean energy as renewable energy. Are these the same things or is there some nuance or wholly different categories here? Clean energy is energy that does not emit any uh, CO2 emissions. And uh, in most, in many cases, this type of energy is renewable because all the energy we have uh, that uh, is on Earth comes from the sun. So we are talking about uh, wind energy. We are talking about um, solar farms because those uh, uh, resources do not emit any, uh, any CO2 uh, emissions. Now, if you're talking, especially in Indiana or the Midwest, if you're talking about um, bioenergy, for example, if you're talking about ethanol, there, uh, there's a little bit, it is a little bit uh, more difficult because on one hand we have, uh, for example, uh, corn is taking CO2 out of the atmosphere. It is sequestering uh, that CO2 in the plant. And then when we are transforming it into um, into ethanol and it gets burned in the car, then we can say that, well, we are simply recycling that uh, CO2 from the atmosphere into the plant and back into the atmosphere. Now, um, research has shown that it may be a little bit more complicated if you're thinking about bioenergy, because uh, since the U.S. is almost using uh, one-third of uh, corn production, uh, using one-third of corn production into, into ethanol. That means that a lot of corn production is taken away from uh, food and uh, also feed demand. And this has uh, interactions with the global market because um, agriculture is a global, global market. So we can face um, land use change issues in other countries. And if, for example, the cropland in Brazil or the cropland in China is expanding because the U.S. is now producing a lot of uh, biofuels, and if that cropland expansion then goes into uh, into native vegetation, then the question is, well, is it really clean energy or is it renewable energy? Because we are now cutting down forests, for example, um, that are emitting then um, the CO2 that is stored in the wood. And there, there's a huge discussion in the, uh, in the academic literature about the effects and the magnitude of those effects. And it's not just an academic discussion because eventually if it's not something that is readily renewable from wind or solar, it is a sort of a finite in terms of human scope, I would imagine. It is sort of finite in terms of a resource. Not necessarily because you can think about corn production. You can produce corn, you can produce ethanol on a, on a yearly basis, right? So it is not necessarily, it's not necessarily a finite resource, but the, effect, but the problem is 
what are the effects on, uh, on, for example, global land use, or what happens if um, for mice, uh, for corn production, more fertilizer is used. You have more nitrogen being put on the underground, uh, into the ground. That also leads to other sorts of emissions. So, other byproducts of the use as a practice, there is runoff, there is exhausting the soil, and so on and so forth. Correct. So Governor Holcomb says clean energy is a growing part of the economy here, a key driver of economic growth. Again, he says 86,000 uh, clean energy jobs in the state. How do we measure that it's a growth part of the local state economy? You can look at the type of jobs that are created. So if you're thinking about, for example, if you are having more and more uh, wind farms uh, in the state or in the nation, then there are jobs associated with those uh, there are jobs associated with those uh, with the construction and also with the operation of those uh, wind farms, for example. Most of those jobs, I would imagine, would be in the building up of those facilities and the production of the resource and the delivery of this type of energy? There may be also other uh, jobs associated with that. I think at this point, I would say uh, probably with the with the construction, um, and, but also you think about you have to operate those uh, you have to operate those wind farms or those solar plants plants not only in indiana but also also elsewhere and as it pertains to clean energy week we're talking about events designed to draw attention to what the clean energy sector means to our economy and also uh, reducing global emissions as if that's all the national clean energy week talking point this year is that 85% of greenhouse gas emissions are created outside of the United States. I suppose that means we're producing about 15% domestically within the U.S. Where would you say this puts us, the United States, as an issue leader? In terms of CO2 emissions, if you think about we are all uh, we are all responsible for it, okay? So if you and I, if we are driving our car, then we are actually emitting CO2 emissions into the, into the atmosphere. We are contributing to the problem. So it is not necessarily that, um, that you can say that, well, we are only producing 15% or as an individual, I'm only contributing a really small part. The bigger issue here is that it's everyone, right? So everybody has to, um, everybody has to reduce the, their uh, CO2 or carbon, carbon footprint because, um, I was once talking to an atmospheric scientist, and when you are emitting uh, when you are emitting CO two, for example, from driving your car, it takes about two weeks until that CO two that you have emitted, say, from driving from uh, Indianapolis to Bloomington, it takes about two weeks until it is completely dispersed across the globe. Okay, CO two emissions, climate change is a global problem, and if you will, we are all contributing to it. I've been reading and thinking about the things that you research, and a couple of things seem clear to me. There are a lot of areas, first of all, in which anyone could focus, but the economy and industry and our lifestyles, since you were talking about driving a car from one town to the next, those things don't exactly all turn on a dime. So I'm thinking of a couple of stories that we've seen recently, scientists coming out, pointing at new data, suggesting their uh, climate change is advancing more rapidly than it had previously been predicted. So it's easy enough for people to point to wildfires and hurricanes and floods and droughts as evidence that if the time hasn't already passed, that the time is now to combat climate change and the like. What are we to make of these things together? It needs to happen. We don't have a magic wand. There is um, there's a concept of what is called a global carbon budget uh, in the sense that um, we have to, you have to think about carbon emissions as a stock in the sense that the carbon emissions that you're putting out right now, those carbon emissions are going to stay in the atmosphere. And there is the goal to actually have uh, what is called a net zero by 2050, in the sense that 
globally, we are not emitting any, in, in, uh, in net terms, we are not emitting any more CO2 by 2050 uh, globally. So, uh, of course, it would be better if we stopped emitting or if we reduced our emissions significantly right now. But as you said, uh, we, cannot, uh, we cannot do this um, very rapidly. So it will take us some time. So, the, uh, so some of the research that you're, uh, that you're citing suggests that in order to keep uh, the temperature increase below uh, what is usually the number that is, uh, that is out there, it's about 1.5 degrees uh, Celsius above pre-industrial levels. So we can keep that by reducing our emissions to our net emissions, meaning that what we are, because there will always be, there will always be CO2 emissions. But for example, if you're thinking about forests, if you're thinking about, uh, if you're thinking about grassland, you are also, um, we are also sequestering emissions out of the atmosphere. So it's the net effect that should be zero by 2050. And then we can uh, remain within a certain threshold of this temperature increase, but, uh, but, at uh, 1.5 uh, Celsius. We've been talking about clean energy and climate change, but you researched something called bioenergy, and you referenced that a moment ago. I want to get into that a little bit more, just to uh, borrow on your expertise. But first of all, does the idea of bioenergy help us get closer to this concept of net zero if we implement more um, bioenergy sources in our lifestyles? There's a big question about that, but there's a big, again, big discussion about this. Uh, one topic that is used, uh, one topic that is used, um, uh, that, that comes up a lot is what is called uh, bioenergy carbon capture and storage. So basically you are taking, you're taking, uh, you're having bioenergy from biomass. You're converting that into, into electricity. And when you're burning that or when you're using the biomass to uh, produce that electricity, that you're storing that, um, that, carbon into the ground okay or you are there are like carbon pipelines um, that and you are injecting the carbon into into the uh, into the ground now the question is how readily available are those technologies there are some projects um, there are some projects globally but um, if you're thinking about just intuitively it is very difficult to um, it is the concept of um, storing carbon underground, right? It's very, very difficult. And I think it is also a little bit of shifting the, shifting the responsibility that we can say, oh, we can have, um, we can have those bioenergy uh, carbon capture and storage plants. And that relieves us of all efforts in terms of, uh, in terms of carbon emissions, right? So think about that bioenergy as rather something that may be long-term, that is probably, that may be readily available past, uh, past 2050. But there are probably other solutions that can be uh, used more, uh, that can be used more, uh, more readily right now. Um, I think it should be clear that if we really want to combat climate change, it requires a lifestyle change, and it is going to require some. Um, it's going to require a price. Okay, so if you're thinking about, uh, for example, um, carbon emissions that is that is associated with beef production. Okay, so um, with beef production, for example, you have a much higher um, the, the ruminant animals. Uh, there are emissions from enteric fermentation is very high, so they are very uh, water intensive, land intensive. You think if you're thinking about. Uh, uh, grazing cattle, and so there's a high carbon footprint associated with, for example, a steak you're eating. Okay, so uh, it may actually be so if you are if you were to reduce, for example, beef consumption, okay, then you would actually do already a lot for the environment. 
and if it's not only you, but if it's uh, if it's on a on a larger scale, then it would be actually uh, then it's much easier if you're thinking about then uh, then bioenergy carbon capture and storage or some other technology that is um, that is out there. But again, it would require a change from uh, from the individual lifestyle, if that makes sense. You mentioned earlier a wonderful example of bioenergy in terms of corn production and ethanol manufacture. What are some other bioenergy examples that people could look at? So you can basically produce uh, bioenergy from a variety of uh, of feedstocks, if you will. That I mentioned before, that can be that can be corn. Um, Brazil is very successful at um, using um, sugarcane. You can also have uh, wood pellets or, or residues from uh, from forests. That can be the if you're clearing if you're clearing the uh, forest residues, uh, especially in the southeast uh, in the U.S. southeast. You can also have uh, what are called energy crops. Uh, those are, for example, it's called the switchgrass or miscanthus, which you can plant and they have a much higher yield in terms of ethanol. The problem with those uh, sources is that they are very bulky related or in relation to their energy content. So it's very expensive. And uh, I have done research on switchgrass and, um, and miscanthus, and I don't think it will go, uh, it will go anywhere uh, anytime soon. There's always the cost analysis of all that. I know you're also interested in the effects of climate change on agriculture, since you mentioned your research. What sort of research are you doing there beyond uh, this switchgrass example? My recent research is about uh, when we have, and there has been other research about that, um, is what are the effects of climate change on uh, on agricultural crop yields? Um, if you're thinking about um, there are there are various aspects here. On one side, we have uh, we are going to have higher temperature, higher air temperatures. What it does is the air can store more water. Okay, so what this means is if the air stores more water, if it starts to rain, it's going to start really really heavily. Okay, so you're going to have you're going to have downpours. Those effects are predicted, for example, in the U.S. Midwest. And then the question is, uh, what happens to what happens to crop yields if suddenly farmers are faced with uh, flooded fields, or even if you're just looking at the temperature increase if you have heat stress in uh, in the U.S. Midwest, if you have heat stress in uh, in Europe, uh, what does it do to crop yields in those countries? Now, you also have other countries like Canada, um, Russia, that are more on the northern latitudes that can actually have the um, that can actually have beneficial effects that they're now a little bit too cold for 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 yield uh, for for high yields and it may actually improve their uh, it may improve their, their yield effects now crops are traded internationally so when you're suddenly having countries that are seeing a decrease in their yields and then you have other countries that are seeing an increase in yields or even if you're just looking at a decrease that is different across countries, that is going to shift trade around, okay? And that is one of the aspects that I'm that I'm interested in. Um, you can think about uh, the yield projections for the U.S. Midwest um, for, for corn. Uh, they're pretty, um, they're not good, okay? So there you can also think about, uh, you can also think about uh, agricultural welfare uh, or rural welfare uh, of rural communities. Uh, how are they affected? Uh, how are they affected by this type of uh, climate change? You are talk, You asked me before about what are some other areas that I'm interested in related to climate change, um, and this is also related to uh, to uh, other issues. Um, um, so, if you're thinking about um, the proliferation of electric cars, okay. 
So if you're thinking about, well, if we are shifting to electric cars, then we are going to have uh, fewer demand for, for ethanol, for example. Then one of my interests is too, well, what does it do to um, US or Midwestern farmers if on one side you have uh, the yields that are being reduced by climate change or it makes it more expensive or more difficult to actually have a good, uh, good crop yields in the Midwest. And on the other side, you have a declining crop demand from, um, from, uh, for biofuels because you have more and more electric vehicles. So you don't even need the, the biofuel anymore to put in your car in order to drive somewhere. And so ultimately, it's about our wallets as consumers, right? If you're thinking about, um, we talked about uh, meat production before, meat consumption before, if you think that most of the meat uh, meat in the U.S. is actually the is grain-fed, okay? So in the sense that if you have an increase in, if you have an increase in crop prices, um, let, it be, let it be corn, uh, soybean, or uh, soybean meal, or wheat, that is going to have higher production costs for those, uh, for those commodities, it's going to lead to a higher price. And hence, you also have livestock farmers that now have to pay this higher price for their feed. And this will ultimately trickle down to consumers. So it's all interrelated. We all eat. We all have lives that we're trying to live. This this comes home for all of us then as it relates to clean energy, bioenergy, our general consumption habits. These aren't just abstract concepts we're talking about. What are the things we could do right now that could make an impact? And you touched on a little bit of these in the in the micro sense, and that's usually the way that's asked and answered. But in a larger way, in an industrial, perhaps a national sense, where could we make more rapid improvements? Each of us has to realize of what is the current carbon footprint we are having, realizing that um, every one of us is contributing to carbon emissions, CO2 emissions. Every one of us is contributing to, uh, to climate change and that the effects of climate change or the costs of climate change down the road um, are going to be very, very high. And so I think, you know, before I answer the question, I think we have to think about, okay, we are basically facing a trade-off between when do I want to pay the cost for my lifestyle? Do I want to pay a very high cost later or do I really want to pay a little bit of a cost right now? Okay. And of course, you can always say about, well, I'm just going to put it out into the future and I don't care about that. I don't care about that right now. But I think there are, um, if you're thinking about the, the lifestyle changes that, that individual people uh, should be doing is, for example, I mentioned before, um, if you're thinking about the, the emissions associated with beef, if you're thinking about uh, driving your car everywhere instead of walking or biking, um, that also has uh, a lot of emissions. And simply being a little bit, I think, a little bit more aware of, well, that everything you do, if you're turning off the, if you're not turning off the light in your house when you're leaving the house, or if you're not, if I'm in my office right now and I have my light on in the, in the, in the, in the, in the kitchen, right? That is all, those are all small, those are all very small, uh, small changes that we can do. And that individually may not, uh, may not, uh, may not uh, look like much, okay? But if you kind of all do them, then it, uh, it, already, it already helps. So that is more at the micro, that is more at the micro level. Um, I think what I, would, um, what I would advocate for, I know that people are incentive-driven in the sense that 
Um, I, for example, I know that uh, my behavior is not um, it's not environmentally it's not environmentally uh, friendly, if you will, but it's really difficult to change. Um, however, um, what I would like to see from a from a like more macro perspective or from a policy perspective, is really that the um, that the uh, government, not only in the U.S. but elsewhere, for example, um, is imposing a carbon a carbon tax. Okay, and I know that. Uh, where it basically incentivizes or it prices the cost that we are going to face down the road. So if I really want to drive my car, then right now I am not taking into account the effect it has on, uh, on, on climate change and the carbon tax would actually uh, make me take that effect, make me that, make, would make me take that effect um, into account. Now I know that there are discussions about uh, I know that there are discussions about uh, when what is going to happen to uh, to low income people. So if you're thinking about uh, low income households that they're spending a lot of their income share actually on on uh, on uh, on energy, on food, etc. That would through a carbon tax would actually make it more expensive, especially the the energy part, right? And <clears throat> there is always the, uh, there are always solutions in the sense that. You could uh, you could generate revenue, or your gen- this carbon tax would generate revenue, and then, for example, you can apply that as a tax credit uh, to people of uh, that are below a certain uh, below a certain income threshold. Um, so that would be that would be more at the that would be more at the macro level. Um, that as an economist, uh, a carbon tax it works. Okay, it does have effects on how people allocate their budget towards uh, towards good, towards goods and services. And so, if you make them if you make them pay for the climate change damages that is going that are going to happen down the road, that may be one uh, that may be the most effective and efficient approach from an economic perspective. What would you say that we are doing, and I suppose let's look at this in a a sort of domestic United States kind of framework, what would you say we are doing poorly and how could we do better in this particular area? I see the problem not only only in the U.S., but also globally, is um, I think there there are two issues. First of all, we have what is called the, basically the physical basis of climate change, okay? That has nothing to do with policy, okay? In the sense that uh, we are now emitting carbon, we are now emitting uh, greenhouse gases. Those greenhouse gases affect the atmosphere and those effects lead to a temperature increase and there will be changes in the climate down the road. So that's what scientists will tell you. And I think, so that is the first part. The second part is, well, what are we doing about it? And I think personally, there should be no discussion about the first part because the first part is discussing the facts. We know what the effects are of greenhouse gas emissions in the atmosphere. Actually, I have just uh, a couple of months ago, um, I have read and I had to double check that uh, uh, there was an article from a newspaper in New Zealand that uh, said that um, all the coal consumption that we are going to, that all the coal consumption that we are burning is going to lead to climate change uh, down the road. Now, that article was published in 1912, okay? Hmm. So the problem is not new, okay? So the, the, the science knows what's going on. Now, what we are going to do about it, that is different, right? And I think there are, there can be a legitimate discussion about 
which policy instrument is effective, which policy instrument uh, works, which doesn't work. How does it affect people of different income levels? And so I wish that we can kind of leave the discussion about what's going on behind us and then focus our discussion of how are we going to address it. I think that's more like the, the, bigger, uh, the bigger issue that I have. Finally, we like to wind these things up with a bit of optimism. So give us an optimistic note to go home on here. From your perspective, what's a positive we can all take away in terms of where we are, what we're doing right, how we can continue that path? I have to admit that I'm very, very uh, surprised of the changes that I have seen uh, over the last uh, five to 10 years in terms of that um, the climate policy um, in, uh, globally and also in the U.S., is really getting at the forefront of the of policy discussions. Okay, so you have the Biden administration who made made it a central point um, about uh, climate change policy. You also have um, you also have the same uh, issues in Europe. Think about what the uh, what the flooding in uh, in the summer in Germany was that has influenced the discussion. So I think I'm a little I'm optimistic in a sense that. Uh, people are going to realize. Um, people are going to realize that um, that climate change is going to have a, a significant effect. It's going can be and is very expensive. Um, I think, say five, ten, even a longer uh, years ago, people were thinking that climate change is down the road and it may not affect them. And it is said that um, you need to. You have events like um, you have events like a major wildfires. You have events like the flooding in um, the flooding in Germany uh, that are putting those uh, the climate change into into the center at the center point. And it's true that we have to be careful about. Um, so there's always the saying: we should not have we should not confuse climate and weather, right? So you had flooding before in Germany. You had wildfires before in the uh, before in the uh, in the U.S. Right? But climate. Climate is what you expect and weather is what you get, right? And so, for example, what we have seen in, in Germany, of course, this has been, uh, if you think about it, this has been a weather event, okay? And you could have you could have the argument that, well, we had flooding before, so why do we, why do we suddenly care? Why, how do we know it's climate change? But if you're actually looking at the data that um, the, the amount of water that came down in Germany this summer, the intensity, okay, that it is is far out of the what would be expected or far out of what um, what has been observed in the past. And so um, there's a little bit of optimism that people realize now that this is a big topic and it is going to have uh, it is going to have can have catastrophic consequences. Dr. Jerome Demortier, economist and professor in the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. And we thank you for joining us as well. For more information, follow us on social media. On Topic with IU is on Facebook and Twitter. You can subscribe and download this podcast from services like SoundCloud, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Anchor, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Just search On Topic with IU on your favorite podcast provider. From Bloomington, Indiana, for On Topic with IU, I'm Kenny Smith.